series. If you could open your Bibles to John chapter 13. It's where our Lord has us this morning. Join with me as I read verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved him to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Father in heaven, we are thankful. And for the time that we come to your word, and for the time that we open your word, and for the time that we know that your spirit will be faithful to minister to us through your word. God, help me to speak with clarity. It helped me to speak with the precision of your word, because we know, God, that it's active, that it's living, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, for the hearer, Father, may they clearly understand your truths. God, may we learn how to apply it in our lives, and God, how to walk faithfully before you. But God, what I also know is true, that in a time like this, in a crowd of this size, there are those here that don't know you. And our prayer, Father, is that today, Father, you would save them. That as the gospel is preached, as the Spirit brings clarity, there will be repentance and belief of that great gospel. Yet we thank you for this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we come to a very special place in the gospel of John here this morning. Chapter 13, as I said, as we have already read. For many of you, you may have heard this is known as the Upper Room Discourse. He's there in the Upper Room with his 
disciples. And as Pastor Tim showed us last week, as he closed out chapter 12, there really was this final appeal to those that were in the Judean area and countryside, and, and of course, by extension, you and I. But up until this point, Jesus' ministry has been public and broad, but there's also been something very unique in that public, broad ministry, is that primarily he's brought this message to those that were in rejection of him. For 12 chapters of John, we have seen the rejection of the people in light of the truth that Christ has been sharing. But there's a shift now, because what we're going to see is that the Lord's ministry, not only not which was, was public and broad, now becomes private and narrow. And what's also different, it's speaking to those that he loved deeply and those that loved him deeply. So now we see from chapters 13 to 17 specifically, those that have received Christ, those that love our Lord. And those things are key for us to understand as we move through. Because apart from Judas, these men that are in this room with him are those that genuinely love Christ. And those that he has genuinely loved as well. Consider this, the cross is less than 24 hours away. Probably closer to about 14 hours away. We will see a little bit later that he says that his hour has come. His hour has come. And what's unique here as we start in chapter 13, and we'll be going through this through the rest of this year and probably into next as well, that these, John will take the next seven chapters to only get to the burial. Consider that. A book of 21 chapters, seven of them we're going to see right here. And five of those only covering the last few hours of the night before he goes to the cross with those that have received him, with those that love him, with those that he loves with a deep affection. Jesus starts off the night by displaying an amazing act of loving humility. And we're going to look at that today in this message that I've titled, The Deep Love of Our Humble Lord. The Deep Love of Our Humble Lord. What Christ does for his disciples perfectly represented his earthly ministry, and only hours later, his life would be perfectly completed through the work of the cross. Church, this is the reason why Christ came. This is the reason why Christ came. I'm reminded of Mark 10.45. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. What we're going to see as we move through this entire section this morning as by way of a main point is that the deep love of Christ is given to us as an example through a simple humble act of service, a deep love, and a humble life. I really can only imagine what it would have been like for our Lord here in this moment, knowing what was ahead of him. Because church, he knew. He knew what was coming. He knew the cross was near, but yet shows deep love, shows deep humility, of what his ministry has been for the past three years. Church, this is true love. This is a self-sacrificing love. This is a love that scripture reveals. I'm not a big what would Jesus do person, because I think the Bible's clear on that. But I do wonder, with given a half a day to live, what would we do? And I'm not even here to say what's the right or wrong answer. 
But I know what Christ did with only hours left to live. He chose to show a love and a humility to those that he loved the most. And as we look at this 17 verses here, which really, I believe you probably could have done four messages in these 17 verses. I want to try to look at it as concisely as possible under four different headings. And the first one being that we're going to see the beauty of Christ's love. We're going to see the beauty of Christ's love. Look here in verse 1. It is now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think the first thing for us to pay notice to is that John essentially kind of sets the stage for us. He gives us the timing. He gives us the details of what's going on here, and that's not by chance. The Spirit of God is the one who has penned Scripture, so everything here has its value. But it says they're now before the feast of the Passover. And I believe really this first verse is really an introduction to the upper room discourse as a whole. Obviously, we'll see it a little more narrowly in these 17 verses, but really that sets the stage for what Christ meant to do with his disciples for the rest of the night, to the time in which he went to all of the mock trials. The Passover, as we know, is celebrated every year. It was a celebration of God releasing the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt. So this was a common thing for them to do. It was a required thing for them to do within the law. But this, uh, this is a unique Passover than anyone that's ever happened before. I like to call this one a pivotal Passover because there's a great pivot that takes place here. First of all, it's the final Passover that will be celebrated ultimately with regards to the law because Jesus is the Passover lamb. There's no longer a need for the sacrifice of, of animals because the sacrifice is about to shed his blood for all that are his. And Jesus knew that his time has come. Did you notice that there in the scripture? It says, when Jesus knew. When Jesus knew. Because what we have here is an initiation of the new covenant. We've got the law of Moses, the covenant of law, coming to an end. It's done its work. It's done its job. It's been perfectly fulfilled in the life of Christ. But yet we see the promise of law, the one given to Abraham way before, coming to a watershed moment of all history. I'm reminded of that in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Galatians, when it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Who's the promised offspring of Abraham? It's Christ, the lineage of Christ. Here he is on the brink of his great work of salvation. But in light of this pivotal Passover, Jesus, once again, re remember, knew that his time has come, and it said that right there, and when Jesus knew his hour had come. Well, what, what, does that con what does that contain when we say his hour has come? Well, I, I think we understand rightly that it is his burial, his death, his resurrection. But I think we also need to consider that the time has come for his ascension, when he's going to return to glory with the Father, when his work is completed in its fullness. Many times throughout Jesus' ministry, what has he said? My time has not yet come. Jesus is aware of the time. Jesus knows his mission. Jesus knows why He's there. And I think what's most important is that we understand and know that Jesus is in control 
of this situation. He's not a victim of circumstances. He's not a victim of the devil's work. The sovereign plan of God is at work, and it will not be thwarted. Not only the timing, but also he knows where he's going. Does he not? Jesus looks beyond the cross to his Father in heaven. I think that's an important detail for us to pay attention to. It doesn't minimize the cross. It gives us a greater understanding of what, where Christ came from, what Christ came to do, and where Christ is to go. It says there in the text, to depart out of this world to the Father. He was Emmanuel, God with us. But yet now he is departing back to the Father so that he could send this what? The helper, the Spirit of God. Christ is about to return to his rightful seat of glory with the Father, sealing the work of the cross. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a great proof for us that God was satisfied with the sacrifice. It was perfect. It lacked nothing. It did the work it was intended to do. Philippians 2, in the second half of the one that Pastor Jimmy read this morning in verses 6 through 11, shows us perfectly what Christ came for and how he came. He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus would on every knee should bow and in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Christ's death is not the end, church. Death for you and I is not the end. Whether you know Christ or not, it's not the end. It's the beginning of an eternity. He left his place of high exaltation, humbled himself in the likeness of man to be further restored to his father here after the cross. You know, I really pray that we long for a day to be glorified with Christ, just as Christ does here. When I consider the glory and what it means to be with Christ, to be with our Father, and to consider what it's going to be like to be without the presence of sin, our mind can't understand. What a glorious day, though. And Christ is looking forward to that. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. With Christ fixed on his Father, His greatest act of love is still in his sights. And and I believe we need to live that way as well. We know for those of us that are in Christ, there's a day that we will be in glory with God. But what are we to do while we're here, church? We have a mission to walk out in Christ knew his mission. Perfectly. The last part of that verse says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here's a message in itself. But there's two things here that are really profound that reveal really our Lord's love for his church. It says quite simply right there in the first part, it says, having loved his own who were in the world. Narrowly, his disciples 
broadly in future you and I here today. He loved his own. John 10, 29, my father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch him out of the father's hand. If you're in Christ today, you're Christ's own. What an unbelievable blessing. What an unbelievable promise to be called Christ's own. But it doesn't stop there. Because he says he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And we need to pay attention to that word in there because I think we understand generally what the end means. But really here in the original language, it means to perfection. It means the completeness in the fullness of it, the termination of it. There is no more. Christ loved to the end. Not only did he love his own, but he loved to the end. It was lacking nothing. But as we move out of verse 1 here, we begin to see what this, I would say in some ways, seems to kind of disrupt the flow of the text. Now, there is no disruption. Obviously, it's all by God's intention. And really, I think it's a, uh, a continual confirmation of this introduction to the whole upper room discourse. Because we see this stark contrast between Christ's love and Satan's hatred. And really what he does is it illuminates the love of Christ. Because secondly, the second heading is that we see the backdrop of Satan's hatred. We saw the beauty of Christ's love in verse 1, but as we move to verse 2, we now see the backdrop of Satan's hatred. You understand contrast. Anytime that we need to show contrast, what do we do? We pick something that's completely opposite of it. It brings greater magnification to the thing that we're hoping to magnify. John, all throughout his gospel, uses the back and forth of light versus darkness. And we understand it with great clarity. But here we see another great contrast. Look at it here in verse 2. During supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The scene is set. During supper. Many theologians believe that at this point, Judas has already been paid off. John doesn't give us these details here. But consider that as we move through this text. Because this is a pretty critical detail for us to understand. Because what's going on here is Judas, Judas is sharing a meal with his enemy. With the one that he's going to betray. Which in that time, and I can make an argument for us even in this day is an ultimate act of treachery. I mean, think about that. Your enemy sharing a meal with you as a friend. Mark's account of the Passover meal actually brings this out. He really illustrates it in his reference to Psalm 41, verse 9. And what Psalm 41, verse 9 is, is it comes from 2 Samuel 16. It's a story of Ephithahel, who was David's counselor. And what we see he does is he does, in fact, share a meal with David, but yet we know that he goes against him with his son, Absalom. And that's your homework for the week. Go read 2 Samuel 16. But in Psalm 41, as David recounts, he says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So not only would Judas share a meal with him, But moments later, he's going to get his feet washed by him. 
Consider the backdrop. Consider the hatred that comes from sinfulness, from Satan, in light of the beauty of Christ. Because the remainder of this verse here really just continues to bring this up and show us the realities. It says, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, when we read this verse, it's easy for us to think that Judas had no control of this event. Essentially, in some ways, maybe we would want to say that the devil made him do it. I'm here to kind of debunk that for you, because I believe Scripture is clear in this area. And I think we need to understand rightly so that we can apply this rightly in our lives. Rightly, when we consider those around us and what goes on around us, Judas is fully responsible for his actions. What we see here is that Judas's desires line up with Satan's desires. They hate Christ, and they want him dead. And we, we need to understand that with clarity. Judas is fully responsible. We see later in verse 27, it says that Satan entered him, right? And, and, and that's a message for another time. But what we need to understand rightly right now, and what we need to see clearly is that sin is the issue. The inherent sinfulness of man is what brings separation from God and a hatred of Christ. The devil doesn't make you sin. Your selfishness, your pride, your inherent reality that you came into this world with makes you sin. Now, for those of us that are in Christ, we've been forgiven. But for those that are not, this is the reality of life. Sin wants nothing to do with Christ and his love. It really can be paired to the like poles of a magnet, continually repelling one another, never desiring to be attached. I ask you, are you sitting here today and are unmoved by Christ's love? Unmoved, indifferent. Are you willing to share a meal with Christ, yet hate him? If you're not a Christian here today, have you considered that you're no different than Judas? That that is the inherent reality of those that are against God. They hate Christ. But I do have good news. You can repent and believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that is no longer said of you. When you understand the highness and the holiness of God, when you understand the depravity and the wretchedness of man, and say, you know what? There's a problem here. The solution is Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Because as we move into the rest of this text, Jesus begins to dial in even further his deep love for those that are his own. Really, when we jump into verse 3, he kind of gets us back on track of where we left off in verse 1. And, and, I, and I believe that verse 3 now begins to really introduce the, potential, the, the, the specifics of the washing of the disciples' feet, verses 3 through 17. And we'll look at it as such. In verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. See that reiteration of the glory of God that he's going back to? Think back to Philippians 2 where we saw it not only pre-service but earlier 
right? We see this once again, this connection that he has to the Father. But now, through this well-known interaction with Peter, as many of us have heard, many of us know, what we're going to see here is that our Lord demonstrates this true, humble love, the deep love of our humble Savior. What the God of creation is about to do, church, is take on the task of one of the lowest in society. The lowest in society. So just as we saw this emphasis and this contrast between the love of Christ, the hatred of Satan, we shift a little bit here. We're going to take a look at Peter. And what we're going to look at here is the backlash of Peter's misunderstanding. The backlash of Peter's misunderstanding. I think you understand backlash in general terms. There's backlash when you say something you wish you wouldn't have said. But the first thing that always comes to my mind, and for those of you that are fishermen, understand a backlash really well especially if you use a bait casting reel, right? You have every intention for the perfect cast. You have every intention for the perfect spot, but yet you end up with a rat nest in your fingers. That's a good way to describe Peter right here. He had good intentions, and we're going to see that as we go a little bit further. But really, why did that happen? Well, why does this happen to Peter? Why does this happen to us? Well, that's exactly what happens to him in his, essentially his foolishness. He makes this ratness of the situation. But our Lord's patient and kind and calm. Right? He had all the right intentions. He didn't account for the wind. He didn't account for the weight of his bait. He didn't account for the tree limb. But our Lord is faithful to walk with him through this, just as he walks through with us. And the pun here is intended just like Peter, don't let yourself off the hook. You do the same thing. I do the same thing. We need our Lord. Because I see some, de- some real details we need to pay attention to here as we move into verses 4 and 5 to really understand the humbleness of Christ and this love that he shows his disciples. Picking up in verse 4, we've got to look back to the first word of verse 3 to catch it because it says Jesus. There was the interruption of verse there. But in verse 4, it picks up, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Once again, notice the timing. Jesus rose from supper. They would have laid down and reclined in that day. Jesus rose from supper. But what's interesting and what we need to understand is typically foot washing would have been done pre-reclining at table. So there's a delay. There, there wasn't anyone there to do it. It's, it's Jesus and his disciples. There's not a household person that's been relegated to do so. I believe Jesus is patiently waiting to see if one of the 12 will offer to wash the feet of those that were there because that was normal. That was customary. That's what you did. However, we see that that's not the case because it says Jesus rode from supper. He gets up and teaches a lesson that he knew all along would happen. God knows. Christ knows. But why weren't they jumping up to take care of this task? Well, if we look back to Luke 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Well, if you're the greatest, can't wash feet, right? 
wrong. And I wonder, really, how many times do we do that? And I'm not talking about the specificity of washing feet, but with serving in general. How many times do we sit back and either wait for someone else, or we just go with the assumption that it's not my responsibility? We do it all the time. Foot washing that day was, in fact, relegated to a household slave. And in most cases, not even a, couldn't even be a Jewish one. It had to be of Gentile descent. Now, there were other exceptions for that rule, depending on how the household was set up. But it was considered the lowliest of things to be done in the household. And Jesus stands here as a superior, even if you put him only in the classification as a rabbi or as a teacher, this would have been preposterous for someone in that position to do so. It would have been unheard of. And, and I, I could really just imagine, and if you can imagine with me what the disciples were thinking as Jesus rises from supper and begins to assume this position to take on the lowliest of acts in the society. I bet he's got their attention. I bet their argument on who's the greatest is coming to a halt. And we're not talking about as nasty as you and I's feet are. These guys had feet on next level nasty. <laughs> Open toe shoes, dirt roads, and animal transportation, may I say no more. Nastiness, right? But it was, it was necessary in this day. This was, this was a necessary thing to maintain cleanliness in the home. It was, a pa- it was a fact and a part of what they ultimately did. But these next three interactions between Jesus and Peter really teach us so many things. Not only about Peter, but about our Lord and about, and about us and how we walk out this great faith. Look at it right here with me in verse 6. It says, And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, we know Peter's known to speak quickly, is he not? And really, regardless of what clarity of the situation that he has. And and here he is. He jumps right in. Now, the way the text lays out, it's believed that there's been a few people probably been washed prior to Peter. So he's he's building up his story as this goes. What am I going to say when he finally gets to me? And he asks Jesus a question. Jesus is the one that's supposed to ask questions, right? But Peter was devoted, and he loved his Lord despite not understanding everything. We can't lose sight of that here. Peter loved Christ. He was devoted to Christ. Actually, right here in the original language, when he says Lord, it's in the emphatic. He's like, Lord, do you wash my feet? There's this element of he's slightly appalled at the idea that his Lord would wash his feet. He's got great intentions. But look what Jesus simply responds. He says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And when's afterward? It's after the resurrection. It's after the Spirit of God indwells the life and heart of Peter. And did he not get it? Peter got it. Peter was not the same man after being touched by our Lord. Peter can't understand it really at this point. It's not because Christ hasn't been clear. He just lacks understanding. And the same thing is true for you and I. Many things are clear, but that doesn't mean we understand. God's word is clear, but do you understand every nuance of it? No. 
Our Lord's faithful to walk with us. He's faithful. He's loving to deal with Peter here. Because what Jesus is doing is he's really teaching something beyond humble service. He is teaching that. But there's something more to it, even further so. What he's trying to show Peter is that God's ways are higher than your ways, Peter. We don't always understand. Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I love the comparison. Heavens, earth, God, man. Isn't that what brings us to salvation? Understanding and seeing the great gap that exists? But God, rich in mercy. Our lack of understanding reveals our faith and trust in the Lord. Faith precedes knowledge. Faith precedes knowledge. And I ask you, as you evaluate your life, as you consider these things, even maybe in this moment, does your faith precede knowledge? Or does knowledge precede faith? Where does salvation even start? Faith. But Peter doesn't get it, nor does he stop. Because if we look in verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Wow. Once again, in the emphatic. And not only in the emphatic here, but with a double negative. He means business here. You shall never wash my feet. Now we need to think about something, though. I think it's important. Because it seems as though Peter's responding out of devotion. Would you, would you agree with me that? And I, and, I, and I think he is. But really what it reveals is a couple things. One, it's beginning to reveal a dependence that he has on himself. Apart from what Christ has commanded him. He's saying that his way in this moment is better than the Lord's way. Who are we slaves of, church? We're slaves of Christ. And over anything, even Peter's best intentions, God requires obedience. God requires obedience. When is it ever okay for us to tell the Lord he can't do something? Really, consider that. But do we do that in our own lives? We do. The question is, are we quick to repent? Are we quick to walk faithfully in the chastisement of our Lord? Jesus answered him, the amazing patience of our Lord. If, you do not wa- if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Mm. I think our Lord does two things here in this response. Clearly, this idea of washing, he, 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 he clarifies that why did Christ come in his first advent? To be a ransom for many. To serve. He'll come back as a reigning king. But this time, a humble, loving Lord. But secondly, if we're not cleansed from our sin, not only at salvation, we have no part. And that word part there means an inheritance. It's unearned. 
If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. First John 1, 7 through 9. And I can imagine John, as he pins this epistle later in life, being here as an eyewitness and seeing this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we never deceive ourselves. May we understand rightly sin. May we repent quickly. I love the remainder of this dialogue with Jesus and Peter because, you know, Peter's kind of created this mess, this backlash, and now he's in this untangling process. So Simon Peter responds, and he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. We love Peter, don't we? True to form, Peter does an about face, and he's running in the other direction. And I, and I think this, you know, and, and as I prepared this message, I looked at this, there's really just a, a special love for Peter that we see here for our Lord. He still doesn't understand. And we, and we know this is true, but church, he wants all of Christ. It's a genuine love. He recognized his error, and now he's heading in the other way. May that be said of us. May we recognize and repent. Because what our Lord does here in this next section, and through his explanation to Peter, is what he does is he teaches them, and he teaches us the amazing doctrine of justification and sanctification. All in one verse. The second part of verse 10 says, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Church, when you are saved by Christ, you are justified. You are positionally placed in Christ for all eternity. Charles Spurgeon said that you stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Wow. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. However, we know the reality is is we still have to deal with the power of sin in our lives. Sin doesn't go away. But we've been forgiven. Do you live in light of your forgiveness? Or do you live in condemnation of your sin? Our Lord is forgiven Just like they only needed to bathe their feet, we as believers must wash daily through repentance. And that's what Christ is telling him. You're, Peter, you're saved. You're, you're mine. I loved you to the end. I'm going to love you to the end. But you still are dealing with sin right now. Repent. We've been bathed. We've been baptized with Christ is what God's word tells us. Philippians 2 and verse 12, to bring that one up again. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
we are to continually live a life that is being sanctified, that is being set apart unto Christ, unto greater holiness. And how does that come? Through recognition of our sinfulness, of where we have erred, where we have transgressed against God, and quickly repented and walked in the opposite direction. And guess what? You get to do that the entire life that you're on this earth. For as long as the Lord would have you here, are you daily being cleansed? Are you broken by your sin? And are you repenting of that sinfulness? Jesus follows up in the second part of verse 10 into verse 11. And he says, and you are clean. Once again, reaffirming to Peter. But not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus gives Peter an assurance of his salvation. We can have assurance of our salvation. But he also states this reality of Judas. Now it is important for us to know right here, this is all happening, right? John's pinning this after this has taken place. As they sit there in this upper room, apart from John, a little later on in the meal, no one else knew what Judas had gone on. And he's kind of speaking in this bit cryptic language, but yet he shows the great love that he has for his own. Loved them to the end. Christ knew at this point. And as I think about Judas, I can't help but think even more in the context of you and I here today. Because the same is true for some of you here today. And my encouragement is don't presume upon, upon the Lord's patience. Don't assume you have tomorrow. Don't assume you have the next couple hours. Repent and believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. And lastly, as we move through this last section of the text, there is another shift. Because verses 7 through 11 are rich, rich in theology as we saw. But 12 through 17 begin to bring this application of what he's just taught his disciples and what he's teaching you and I here today. Because here's the thing, that this is key. This is what we need to remember. Our position in Christ must always promote practice. Our doctrine must always call us to duty. We don't just learn something and do nothing with it. It's useless without application. And, and Christ knows that here, and he, and he walks them through this. So firstly, we saw the beauty of Christ's love. We saw the backdrop of Satan's hatred. We saw the backlash of Peter's misunderstanding. But now, the blessing of our obedience. The blessing of our obedience. And in this last section, what we really get is this monologue from Christ. Pouring out his heart for those that he loved. Pouring out his heart for those that he would love perfectly to the end. Christ as he pours the concrete of truth into the mold that he has just made through his actions. Look at it in verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you not understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Notice once again, Jesus resumes his place. 
back at table. And he begins his debriefing of what he's just done for his disciples. And he asks them this question that really we could understand as a command. Do you understand what I have done to you? Said another way, understand what I have done to you. It was clear. And he's going to help them understand. If you're a believer here today, do you understand what the Lord has done for you? Have you thought upon that in the recent days? Have you felt the weight of the cross and the sacrifice by which our Lord walked? We need to understand it well. Because what Jesus does here in his next two verses, he solidifies the way in which his disciples are to walk going forward and the way in which you and I are to walk in our faith. Verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He affirms their beliefs. He says, you got it. You understand it. That's right. But consider this, the disciples have now walked with Jesus as, his, as their teacher for almost three years. But if we look back in the text, what we see, it was almost two years into his ministry before they really began to understand some other things outside of just the fact that he was a good teacher. I'm reminded of Matthew 16, a beautiful verse in verses 15 and 16, or verses, should I say. This is Jesus once again talking with Peter, and he said to him, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's not just a teacher. That's Messiah. That's Lord. So as he, as he affirms what they know rightly, he continues in verse 14, and he bringing, bringing here emphasis to his lordship. Because he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's simple enough to understand, but notice what he does here. The previous verse said teacher and Lord. This one now says Lord and teacher. He switches the order. He is Savior and Lord. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is Lord. And as his children, we are called to follow his ways. That's the reality of our faith, that there's a surrender to the Lordship of Christ. He's our Lord and our Savior, our great teacher. Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. How can we call him Lord and not obey his commands? And to finalize this great truth, he points back to what he did to show him that. In verse 15, he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. You see here, church, the goal wasn't here just to wash feet. And in turn, for you and I just to go wash feet. Although if you wash feet, and although feet washing air, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus didn't come here just for us to wash feet. The principle here is to lovingly serve with the humility that can only come from Christ. And if that means that you wash the feet of someone, then to God be the glory. 
The greater truth is the humility, it's the love, it's the ability to walk in a way that only Christ can inform us to do so. You can apply this in your workplace. Apply this in your marriage. Apply this in the rearing of your children. Don't take the position that you're greater or higher and that none of that is necessary. Do as Christ did. Wash the dishes. Vacuum the kitchen. Fold some clothes. Make your bed. Hang out with your kids when you don't want to. Take a shift from a brother at work when he's in need. The options are endless. The options are endless. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Church, this is the antidote for pride. This is the antidote for pride. Be a servant. Said another way, how can I ask you to do something I'm not willing to do myself? And if I can do it, so can you. We've heard those before, haven't we? If we refuse to follow our Lord's example, church, let us understand that is the height of pride and sinfulness. May that never be said of us. And our Lord closes out this last verse here with just an amazingly short but yet so profound truth. In verse 17, if you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. How are we blessed? Obey our Lord's commands. What is the will of our Father? Obey his commands. Notice the promise. It's out of our obedience to Christ comes the blessings of Christ. You want to be blessed by Christ? Follow his ways. David understood this in a very profound way. He opens up the book of Psalm Verse 1, verses 1 through 3, we did this just weeks ago. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Church, do you understand what he says there? Do you understand the stark contrast to living a life of holiness and to not? I think you do. I know you do. I see your life. You live lives pleasing to our Father. Robert Mount's commenting on this says, Knowledge of what is right has no value unless it changes conduct. In fact, to know what ought to be done and to not do it is sin. Now, he didn't come up with that on his own. James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. As we close out this section here, as we've dived into these 17 verses, let us remember that the deep love of Christ is given to us as an example through a simple humble act of service. It really is that simple, church. May we not make it so complex 
serving, understood rightly, is easy. The application only comes through a life submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Ask yourselves these questions. How are you serving those around you? Your wife, your kids, your workplace, your church. Ask yourself this. Are you going to walk according to Christ's ways? Do you desire to honor God in all that you do? Do you assess regularly the things that you are doing? And say, is this honoring to you, Father? Is this in accordance with your scripture? Is this pleasing to you? And I believe if you do those things, I believe you'll understand this. Do you understand the depth of the love of Christ? Do you really understand what Christ has done for you? Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is true love. This is self-sacrificing love. This is a love that Scripture reveals over and over and over. And my prayer for you, just as Paul did here for the church, 2 Corinthians 2.2 says, and may this be who we are, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified.